Section 32 of Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nemo and Eva Davis. Fairy Tales from Hans Christian Andersen. Translated by Mrs. Edgar Lucas. What the Moon Saw. Seventeenth Evening. Listen to what the moon told me. I have seen the cadet become an officer, and for the first time put on his handsome uniform. I have seen the young girl in her ball dress, and I have seen a royal bride rejoicing in her festal robes. But I have never seen greater delight than I saw last night in a child, a little four-year-old girl. She had on a new blue frock and a pink hat, they had just been put on, and the bystanders were calling for lights. The moon shining through the window gave too faint a light. They must have something brighter altogether. There stood the little girl, as stiff as any doll, holding her arms away from the dress, each finger stuck stiffly out. Oh, how her eyes glistened, and her whole face beamed with delight. Tomorrow you shall go out in them, said the mother and the little one looked down at her frock and smiled contentedly. "'Mother,' she said, "'what will the dogs think when they see me in all my pretty things?' Eighteenth Evening "'I have told you,' said the moon, "'about Pompeii, that city of the dead resuscitated, and again ranking among living places.' I know another town even more fantastic. It is not so much the corpse as it is the ghost of a city. I seem to hear the romance of the floating city wherever the fountains play into their marble basins. Yes, water must tell its story. The waves of the sea sing its song. A mist often floats over the stretches of its waters. That is its veil of widowhood. The bridegroom of the sea is dead. His palace and town are now his mausoleum. Do you know this city? Never has the roll of wheels or the clatter of horses' hoofs been heard in its streets. The fish swim in them, and the black gondola skims over the surface of its green waters. I will show you, continued the moon, the form of the town, its grand square, and you may imagine yourself to have been in fairyland. The grass grows between its broad flags, and at dawn thousands of tame pigeons flutter round its solitary lofty tower. On three sides of it you are surrounded by colonnades. Under their shelter the silent Turk sits smoking his long pipe. A handsome Greek boy leans against the columns and looks up at the trophies and lofty mast raised around memorials of its ancient power the flags droop from them like morning scarves here a girl is resting she has put down her heavy water pails and the oak in which she carried them hangs on her shoulders she supports herself against the column of victory that is no fairy palace there in front of you it is a church its gilt cupolas and balls glitter in my beams. 
those majestic bronze horses have travelled like the bronze horse in the fairy tale they came hither went hence and again returned do you see the gorgeous colouring on the walls and in the window panes it looks as if genius had given way to the whims of some child in adorning the wonderful temple do you see the winged lion on its column the gold still glitters but its wings are bound the lion is dead for the king of the sea is dead his great halls are empty and there are only bare walls now where costly pictures used to hang the lazzaroni sleep now under the arches on whose floor only the highest nobles in the land dared at one time to tread from the deep wells or does it come from the leaden chambers near the bridge of sighs sounds a groan just as in the days when tambourines sounded from the gondolas with their gay trappings when the bridal ring flew from the brilliant bucentaur to adria queen of the sea o adria wrap thyself in the mist let thy widow's veil cover thy bosom hang it over the mausoleum of the bridegroom o venice thou city of ghostly marble palaces nineteenth evening i was looking down on a large theatre said the moon the whole house was crammed with spectators for a new actor was to make his debut my beams glided over a little window in the wall a painted face was pressed against its panes it was the hero of the evening the knightly beard curled around his chin but there were tears in the man's eyes for he had been hissed off the stage and rightly hissed off poor fellow but a poor fellow can't be tolerated in the kingdom of art his feelings were deep and he loved his art enthusiastically but art did not love him the call bell rang the hero enters boldly and gallantly was the stage direction he had to face an audience to whom he was a laughing-stock when the piece came to an end i saw a man muffled in a cloak creep downstairs it was the crushed night of the evening the scene-shifters whispered to each other i followed the poor wretch to his home hanging is an ugly death and one has not always got poison at hand i know he thought of both i saw him look at his pale face in the glass and half shut his eyes to see if he would be a handsome corpse a man may be most unhappy and yet very affected he thought of death of suicide i believe he wept over himself he wept bitterly and when a man has been able to shed tears he does not kill himself a whole year has passed since then there was a play being acted at a small theatre by a poor touring company i saw a well-known face the painted cheeks and curly beard he looked up at me and smiled and yet he had been hissed off the stage only a minute ago hissed by a miserable low-class audience in a wretched theatre tonight a poor hearse drove out of the town gates not a soul following it it was a suicide our poor painted despised hero 
the driver was the only mourner nobody else only the moon the suicide is laid at the corner of the churchyard under the wall the nettles will soon shoot up and the grave diggers will throw weeds and rubbish on it from other graves twentieth evening i come from rome said the moon there in the middle of the town on the summit of one of the seven hills stands the ruins of the palace of caesars the wild fig grows now in the crevices of the walls covering their nakedness with its broad grayish-green leaves the ass treads down its laurel hedges among the heaps of stones and browses on the barren thistle here whence once the eagles of rome fluttered came saw and conquered there is now the entrance to a poor little hovel plastered up with clay between the two broken marble columns the vine hangs like a mourning wreath over its crooked windows an old woman lives in it with her little granddaughter they now rule in the palace of the caesars and show its treasures to visitors there is only a bare wall left standing of the rich throne room the dark cypress points with its long shadows to where the throne once stood the earth is heaped high over the ruined floor and the little girl now sole daughter of the caesars often brings her footstool there when the evening bell rings she calls the keyhole in the door close by her balcony for she can see half rome through it as far as the mighty dome of st peter's silence reigned as always this evening when the little girl came out into the full light of my beams she was carrying a water jar of antique shape on her head her feet were bare her short skirt and the sleeves of her little chemise were ragged i kissed the child's delicately rounded shoulders her dark eyes and black shining hair she climbed up the steps to the little house they were steep and made of sharp bits of marble from the broken columns gaily colored lizards darted out among her feet but they did not startle her she was just raising her hand to the bell pole this was a hare's foot at the end of a piece of string such is the bell now in the palace of the caesars she paused a moment what was she thinking about perhaps about the beautiful infant jesus wrapped in gold and silver down in the chapel where the silver lamps gleamed and where her little friends took part in singing the hymns which she knew too i do not know she moved forward again tripped and the jar fell from her head onto the steps where it was broken to atoms among the fluted marble she burst into tears the beautiful daughter of the caesars weeping over the poor broken jar there she stood with her bare feet weeping and dared not pull the string the bell rope of the palace of the caesars twenty-first evening the moon had not shone for over a fortnight but now i saw it again it rose round and bright above the slowly moving clouds listen to what it told me 
I followed a caravan from one of the towns of the Fazan. They made a halt near the desert by one of the salt plains. It shone like a sheet of ice and was covered only in parts with quicksands. An elder among them, with a water bottle hanging at his belt, and a bag of unleavened bread lying by him, drew a square with his staff in the sand, and wrote in it some words from the Koran. After this, the whole caravan entered within the consecrated space. A young merchant, a child of the sun, I saw it in his eyes and in the beautiful lines of his figure, rode his fiery white steed thoughtfully. Was he perhaps thinking of his fair young wife? It was only two days since a camel covered with skins and costly shawls carried her, his lovely bride, round the walls of the town to the sound of drums and pipes. Women sang, and festive salvos were fired. The loudest and most frequent were fired by the bridegroom himself. And now, now he was leading the caravan through the desert. I followed them for many nights. I saw them rest by the walls among the dwarf palms. They stuck their knives into the breast of the fallen camel and roasted the meat by the fire. My beams cooled the burning sand. My beams showed them the buried rocks like submerged islands in a sea of sand. They encountered no unfriendly tribes on the trackless plain. No storms arose, and no sandstorm swept mercilessly over the caravan. At home, the lovely wife prayed for her husband and her father. Are they dead? she asked my golden horns. Are they dead? she asked my shining disc. Now the desert lies behind them. And this evening they sit beneath the lofty palm trees, where the crane spreads its broad wings, and the pelican watches them through the branches of the mimosa. The luxuriant thicket is trodden down by the heavy feet of the elephant. A troop of negroes are returning from the market far inland. The women have copper beads twisted round their heads of frizzled hair, and they are clad in skirts of indigo blue. They drive the heavily laden oxen, on whose backs the naked black children lie sleeping. A negro leads by a rope a young lion which he has bought. They approach the caravan. The young merchant sits motionless and silent, thinking of his lovely bride, dreaming in the land of the blacks of his white flower beyond the desert. He lifts his head. A cloud passed over the moon, and then another. I heard no more that evening. Twenty-second evening I saw a little girl crying, said the moon. She was crying at the wickedness of the world. The loveliest doll in the world had been given to her. Oh, it was most delicate and fragile, and certainly not fit to face adversity. But the little girl's brothers, great big boys, had taken the doll away and put it up into a high tree and then had run away. The poor little girl could not get it down, or get at it in any way, so she sat down and cried. The doll, no doubt, was crying too. 
it stretched out its arms among the branches and looked most unhappy yes this must be the adversity of the world about which mamma talks so much oh the poor doll evening was coming on it was getting dark and it would soon be night was it to stay out there all alone in the tree for the whole night no the little girl could not endure the thought i will stay with you she said although she was not at all courageous and she fancied already that she could see the little brownies in their high pointed caps peeping through the bushes and there were long ghostly shadows dancing about in the dark walk they came nearer and nearer and stretched out their hands towards the tree where the doll was sitting and they laughed and pointed their fingers at her oh how frightened the little girl was but if one has committed no sin she thought evil can do one no harm i wonder if i have sinned then she began to think oh yes she said i laughed at the poor duck with a red rag around its leg it looked so funny limping along so i laughed and it is a sin to laugh at dumb animals then she looked up at her doll have you ever laughed at dumb animals and the doll seemed to shake its head twenty-third evening i looked down in the tyrol said the moon i let the dark pine trees throw their long shadows onto the rocks i saw saint christopher with the child jesus on his back as they are painted on the walls of the houses they are colossal in size reaching from the ground to the tops of the gables there is also saint florian pouring water on the burning house and the saviour hanging bleeding on the cross at the roadside these are old pictures to the new generation but i saw their origin there is a solitary convent perched upon the mountainside like a swallow's nest two of the sisters were standing up in the tower ringing the bell they were both young so their glances roamed over the mountains into the wide world beyond a travelling carriage drove along the high road the post-horn sounded gaily and the poor nuns fixed their eyes filled with the same thoughts upon the carriage a tear stood in those of the youngest the sound of the horn grew fainter and fainter till its dying notes were drowned by the convent bell twenty-fourth evening hear what the moon told me several years ago i was in copenhagen i peeped in at the window of a poor little room the father and mother were both asleep but their little son was awake i saw the flowered chintz curtains stirring and the child peeped out i thought at first that he was looking at the grandfather's clock from bonholm it was gaily painted in red and green and a cuckoo sat at the top it had heavy laden weights and the pendulum with its shining brass disc swung backwards and forwards tack but that was not what he was looking at no it was his mother's spinning wheel which stood under the clock it was the boy's dearest treasure in all the house 
but he dared not touch it, or he would be wrapped over the knuckles. He would stand for hours while his mother was spinning, looking at the whirling spindle and the whizzing wheel, and he had his own thoughts about them. Oh, if only he dared spin with that wheel! Father and mother were asleep. He looked at them. He looked at the wheel, and soon he put one bare little foot out of bed, and then another little bare foot, followed by two little legs. Bump! There he stood upon the floor. He turned round once more to see if father and mother were still asleep. Yes, they were fast asleep, so he went softly, very softly, in his short little shirt to the wheel and began to spin. The cord flew off, and the wheel ran faster and faster. I kissed his yellow hair and his large blue eyes. It was a pretty picture. His mother woke just then. She put the curtain aside and looked out, and thought she saw a brownie or some other little sprite. In heaven's name, she said, pushing her husband. He opened his eyes, rubbed them, and looked at the busy little figure. Why, it is our Bertol, he said, and my eye turned away from the poor little room. My glances extend so far that at the same moment I looked in at the galleries of the Vatican, where the sculptor gods stand. I flooded the Laocoon group with my light, and the marble seemed to sigh. I pressed a gentle kiss upon the bosom of the muses. They almost seemed to move. But my glance rested longest upon the great Nile group with a colossal god. He leant pensively against the sphinx, dreamy and thoughtful, as if he was pondering on the bygone years. Little cupids played around him sporting with the crocodiles. One tiny little cupid sat inside the cornucopia with his arms folded, looking at the great solemn river god. He was a true picture of the little boy at the spinning wheel. His features were the same. This little marble child was lifelike and graceful in the extreme, yet the wheel of time had turned more than a thousand times since he sprang from the marble. Just so many times as the little boy turned the spinning wheel in the humble little room had the greater wheel of time whirled round, and yet will whirl before the present time creates marble gods like these. Now all this happened years ago, continued the moon. Yesterday, I looked down onto a bay on the east coast of Zealand. The cliffs round it were beautifully wooded, and in the midst of the woods stood an old red castle, with swans swimming in the moat. A little country town lay near, with its church buried among the apple trees. A procession of boats with blazing torches glided over the smooth waters. These torches were not lighted for spearing eels. No, it was a great festivity. There were sounds of music and singing, and in one of the boats stood the object of all the homage. He was a tall, powerful man, wrapped in a cloak. He had blue eyes and long white hair. I knew him and thought of the Vatican and the Nile group among all the sculptured gods. Then I thought of the poor little room. I believe it was in Gronega, 
where little Bertel sat spinning in his little shirt. The wheel of time had been turning, and new gods have arisen from the marble since then. From the boats came hurrah, hurrah, for Bertel Thor Waltzen. Twenty-fifth evening I will give you a picture from Frankfurt, said the moon. I looked at one building in particular. It was not Goethe's birthplace, not the old town hall, where, through the grated windows, may still be seen the horns of the oxen which were roasted and given to the people at the coronation of the emperor. No, it was a burgher's house I looked at. It was painted green and was quite plain. It stood at the corner of the narrow Jew's street. It was Rothschild's house. I looked in through the open door. The staircase was brightly lighted. Footmen stood there holding burning lights in massive silver candlesticks, bending low before the old woman who was being carried down in a carrying chair. The owner of the house stood with bared head and pressed a respectful kiss upon her hand. She was his mother. She nodded kindly to him and the footmen, and they carried her into a little house in the dark, narrow street. Here she lived. Here she had borne her children. From here their fortune had blossomed forth. If she now left the little house in the mean street, perhaps their luck would leave them. This was her belief. The moon told me no more. Her visit tonight was far too short. But I thought of the old woman in the narrow, mean street. One word from her, and she might have a palace on the banks of the Thames. One word, and she would have had a villa on the Bay of Naples. Were I to leave this humble house where the fortunes of my sons originated, their fortune might forsake them. It is a superstition, but a superstition of such a kind that, if one knows the story and sees the picture, it only needs two words to understand it. A mother. 26th Evening Yesterday at daybreak, these were the moon's own words, not a chimney was yet smoking in the great town. And it was these very chimneys I was looking at, when suddenly a little head popped out at the top of one of them, followed by the upper part of a body, with the arms resting on the edge of the chimney. Hurrah! It was a little chimney-sweep, who had gone right up a chimney for the first time in his life, and got his head out at the top. Hurrah! This was a very different matter from creeping about in the narrow flues and smaller chimneys. A fresh breeze met his face, and he could see right out over the town, away to the green woods beyond. The sun was just rising, big and round, and it shone straight into his face, which beamed with delight, although it was thoroughly smudged with soot. Now the whole town can see me, said he, and the moon can see me, and the sun too. Hurrah! And he waved his brush above his head. Twenty-seventh evening Last night I looked down upon a town in China, said the moon. My beams illumined the long blank walls which bordered the streets. Here and there you certainly find a door, 
but it is always tightly shut for what does the chinaman care about the outside world the windows of the houses behind the walls are closely covered with jealousies the temple was the only place whence a dim light shone through the windows i looked in upon its gorgeous colors the walls from floor to ceiling are covered with pictures in strong colors and rich gilding they are representations of the labors of the gods here on earth there is an image of a god in every niche almost hidden by gorgeous draperies and floating banners before each of the gods which are all made of tin stands a little altar with holy water flowers and burning wax tapers at the upper end of the temple stands Fu, the chief of all the gods. He is draped in silk of the sacred yellow. At the foot of the altar sat a living being, a young priest. He seemed to be praying, but in the midst of his prayers, to fall into a reverie. And no doubt that was a sin, for his cheeks burnt, and his head sank lower and lower. Poor Sui Hung was he in his dream seeing himself behind those dreary walls in a little garden of his own working at the flower beds perhaps a labor much dearer to him than this of tending wax tapers in the temple or was it his desire to sit at a richly spread table wiping his lips between each course with tissue paper or was his sin so great that did he dare to express it the heavenly powers would punish him with death did his thoughts venture to stray with the barbarians' ships to their home in far distant England? No, his thoughts did not fly so far afield, and yet they were as sinful as only the hot blood of youth can conceive them. Sinful, here in the temple, before the image of few and the other gods. I know whither his thoughts had wandered. In the outskirts of the town, upon the flat flagged roof of a house where the parapets seemed to be made of porcelain and among handsome vases full of large white bell-shaped flowers sat the lovely pe with her narrow roguish eyes full lips and tiny feet her shoes pinched but the pressure at her heart was far greater and she wearily raised her delicately modelled arms in their rustling satin sleeves in front of her stood a glass bowl with four goldfish in it. She slowly stirred the water with a little painted and lacquered stick. Slowly, oh very slowly, for she was musing. Was she thinking how richly the fish were clad in gold, and how securely they lived in their glass bowl with all their plentiful food, and yet how much happier they would be if they had their freedom? Ah, yes! The fair Pei thoroughly comprehended that. Her thoughts wandered from her home and sought the temple, but not for the sake of God. Poor Pei, poor Sui Hung. Their earthly thoughts met, but my cold beams fell between them like an angel's sword. Twenty-eighth evening it was a dead calm said the moon the water was as transparent as the pure ear that i was traversing i could see the curious plants down under the water they were like giant forest trees stretching towards me many fathoms long 
The fish swam over their tops. A flock of wild swans were flying past high up in the air. One of them sank with outspread wings, lower and lower. It followed with its eyes the aerial caravan, as the distance between them rapidly increased. It held its wings outspread and motionless, and sank as a soap bubble sinks in the quiet air. When it touched the surface of the water, it bent its head back between its wings and lay as still as the white lotus blossom on a tranquil lake. A gentle breeze rose and swelled the glittering surface of the phosphorescent water. Brilliant is ether itself, rolling on in great broad billows. The swan lifted its head, and the sparkling water dashed over its back and breast like blue flames. Dawn shed its rosy light around, and the swan soared aloft with renewed vigor towards the rising sun, towards the faint blue coastline whither the aerial caravan took its flight. But it flew alone with longing in its breast. Solitary, it flew over the swelling blue waters. Twenty-ninth Evening I will give you one more picture from Sweden, said the moon. Among gloomy forests near the melancholy shores of the Roxen stands the old convent church of Reita. My beams fell through a grating in the wall into a spacious vault where kings slumber in their marble tombs. A royal crown glitters on the wall above them as an emblem of earthly glory. A royal crown, but it is made of painted wood and kept in place by a wooden peg driven into the wall. Worms have gnawed through the gilded wood. The spider has spun its web from the crown to the coffin. It is a mourning banner, frail and transient as the grief of mortals. How calm their slumber. I remember them distinctly. I still see the confident smile around those lips, which so authoritatively and decidedly uttered words of joy or grief. When the steamer comes up among the mountains like a bark from fairyland, many a stranger comes to the church and pays a visit to this burial vault. He asks the king's names, and they echo with a dead and forgotten sound. He looks at the worm-eaten crown, and if he has a pious mind, there is sadness in his smile. Sleep on, ye dead. The moon remembers you. The moon sends her cold beams in the night into your silent kingdom, over which the wooden crown hangs. Thirtieth Evening Close to the high road, said the moon, stands an inn, and immediately opposite to it is a great wagon shed, the roof of which was being thatched. I looked through the rafters and through the open trap door into the uncomfortable space below. A turkey cock was asleep on a beam, and a saddle was resting in an empty crib. A traveling carriage stood in the middle of the shed. Its owners slept in it as safely as possible, while the horses were being fed and watered, and the driver stretched his legs. Although, and I know it for a certainty, 
he had been fast asleep for more than half the way. The door of the groom's bedroom was open. The bed was topsy-turvy, and a candle guttered on the floor. The wind whistled cold through the shed. It was near daybreak the midnight. A party of strolling musicians were asleep in a stall. The father and mother, I dare say, were dreaming of the drops of liquid fire in their flask, and the pale girl but the teardrop in her eye. A harp lay at their head, and a dog at their feet. Thirty-first evening It was in a little country town, said the moon. I saw it last year, but that doesn't matter, for I saw it so distinctly. Tonight I read about it in the papers, but the story is not nearly so intelligible in them. A bear leader was sitting in the bar of a public house, eating his supper. His bear was tied up outside behind the woodshed. Poor bear, he wouldn't harm a creature, though he looked fierce enough. Three little children were playing in the light of my beams, up in an attic. The eldest was perhaps six years old, the youngest not more than two. A muffled sound was heard coming up the stairs. Who could it be? The door flew open. It was the bear, great shaggy Bruin. He was bored by standing out there in the yard, and he had found his way upstairs. I saw it all, said the moon. The children were very much frightened when they first saw the big furry animal. They each crept into a different corner. But he found them out. He snuffed at them all, but did not hurt them. Why, it must be a great big dog, they thought, and they began to pat him. He lay down upon the floor, and the smallest boy rolled about on the top of him and played at hiding his golden locks in the bear's long black coat. Then the biggest boy got out his drum and played upon it as hard as ever he could. As soon as he heard it, the bear got up on his hind legs and danced. It was a pretty sight. Each boy shouldered his gun, and the bear, of course, had to have one too, and he held it as tightly as any of them. This was indeed a rare playmate they had got, and no mistake. They marched up and down, one, two, one, two. Just then someone came to the door and opened it. It was the children's mother. You should have seen the terrible, speechless agony in her ashen face, with open mouth and starting eyes. But the smallest boy nodded to her. He was ever so pleased, and cried out loud in his baby way, We are only playing soldiers, mother. And then the bear leader made his appearance. 32nd Evening the wind blew strong and cold. The clouds were chasing by, and the moon only appeared now and then. I looked down upon the flying clouds from the silence of space above, said he. I can see the clouds chasing over the earth. Just lately I was looking down into a prison, outside which stood a closed carriage. A prisoner was about to leave. My beams penetrated the grated window and shone upon the inside wall. The prisoner was tracing some lines upon the wall. It was his farewell. 
he did not write words but a tune the outpouring of his heart on his last night in this place the door opened and he was conducted to the carriage he looked up at my round disc clouds flew between us as if he might not see my face nor i his he got into the carriage the door was shut the whip cracked and off they went through the thick forest where my beams could not reach i looked in through the prison grating again and my beams fell once more upon the wall where the melody was traced his last farewell where words fail melody may often speak but my rays only lighted up a few isolated notes the greater part will always remain dark to me was it a death hymn he wrote or were they caroling notes of joy was he driving to meet his death or to the embrace of his beloved the beams of the moon cannot read all that even mortals write i looked down on the flying clouds from the silence of space above and i see big clouds chasing across the earth thirty-third evening i am very fond of children said the moon the little ones especially are so amusing i often peep at them through the curtains when they least think i see them it is so amusing to see them trying to undress themselves first a little round naked shoulder appears out of the frock then one arm slips out or i see a stocking pulled off a dimpled little leg firm and round and then comes out a little foot made to be kissed and i kissed it said the moon i must tell you what i saw to-night i looked in at a window where the blind did not reach the bottom for there were no opposite neighbors i saw a whole flock of little ones brothers and sisters one little girl is only four years old but she knows our father as well as any of them and her mother sits by her bed every evening to hear it then she kisses her and sits by her till she falls asleep which generally happens as soon as she shuts her eyes to-night the two eldest were rather wild one of them hopped about on one leg in his long white nightgown the second one stood on a chair with the clothes of all the others heaped upon him he said it was a tableau and they must guess what it meant the third and fourth were putting their toys carefully away in a drawer and of course that has to be done but their mother said they must be quiet for the little one was going to say her prayers i peeped in over the lamp said the moon the little four-year-old girl lay in bed among all the fine white linen her little hands were folded and her face quite grave and serious and she began our father aloud but what is this said her mother interrupting her in the middle when you have said give us this day our daily bread you say something more which i can't quite hear what is it you must tell me the little girl hesitated and looked shyly at her mother what do you say after give us this day our daily bread don't be angry mother dear said the little one 
I say, please put plenty of butter on it. End of section 32